Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Mamta Valdarama. She is a senior vice president of operations at Mercy for Animals, a best-selling author and a wife and mom. In her spare time, Mamta volunteers with Moms Demand Action, and she is launching a new community on Instagram called Global Majority Vegan. Mamta also serves as a board member for an animal rights organization. She is committed to cooking fresh food for her family every day. Keeps a tight schedule to get it all done. Originally from Los Angeles. She lives in Metro Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Mamta. Welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. Hi, Vivia. Nice to be here. So you work for Mercy for Animals. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is this organization, and how did you get associated with it? Sure. So Mercy for Animals is a mid-sized nonprofit organization. We operate in five different countries. And our mission is to end factory farming of animals for food. We believe that impact of factory farming on the environment is causing a lot of problems related to climate change. Um, there are health issues associated with eating meat and animals. Um, and our main mission, however, is to reduce animal suffering and the injustices caused by humans on uh, animals that are captured in the food system. My role is. Uh, SVP of operations. So I oversee a lot of the back office work like logistics, tech, finance, and some other areas. Uh, basically, I call myself and my team the people that keep the train on the track. It's work that I absolutely love. That's great that you have a passion for it and your work aligns exactly with your passions. But what kind of qualifications do you need to be an SVP of operations? Sure. So uh, I got here by way of having a long career in operations. The operations that I've done in my past lives before MFA um, were very different, but a lot of the skills and a lot of the things that are required are very transferable. Basically, um, if you're somebody who likes processes, either creating them or improving them, if you like numbers, if you are good at identifying software and implementing it, um, thinking about how to grow an organization in a way that's sustainable. Those are kinds of the skill set that you need to be in operations. There are training courses like formal education and operations at um, college and master degree levels. Uh, but you can still become uh, somebody who's highly skilled and experienced in operations, even if you haven't formally trained in it, if you're if you have a natural bent towards some of these things, or you get some experience through work, then operations could be a really exciting career. We all understand the importance of operations and how it works, but way later in the career, right? So growing up when you were at college, you went to college uh, for a journalism degree undergrad, right? What was your ambition? And how did that bring you all the way here? Yeah, so anyone who looks at my resume or looks at things I've done is probably scratching their head because it is it is non linear at the best uh, of descriptions. So when I started out, I thought that I was a writer. I thought that um, you know I was more of an artist. I was somebody behind the scenes writing the stories of other people and sharing those with the world. Um, my first job out of college and even in internships was in journalism writing. Um, and it was at my first job that somebody actually who was mentoring me approached me and said, hey, you should try maybe doing something in sales. And the reason that that person said that to me was because they identified something in my personality. They saw something that was outgoing, um, easy to engage with people, and 
good at communicating messages, which did come from my writing background. So, um, so there was some correlation there. And at that time, you know, I was just starting out, I was in my early 20s. And I thought, now is the time to try new things and figure out uh, what I want. And if I decide that I want to come back to writing, I think it's something I've, I've trained in, I have a degree in, um, I, I would have something to fall back onto if this sales thing, whatever that was, didn't work out. So I did do sales for a little bit. And I was selling memberships to research programs for a healthcare company. So I was selling research to hospital executives. And what that opened up for me was two worlds that I never thought I would have much interaction with. The first was healthcare as an industry, which I ended up working in for the next 15 years. Um, and then it also opened up this whole world of business, which was pretty foreign to me or not something that I had really thought about. So uh, after working in those sales roles and in healthcare, I ended up getting an MBA. So completely le leaving writing and um, earning a degree, a master's degree in business. That's a very interesting trajectory. Growing up, did you have any specific influences on you? Are people who really shaped you? Yeah, absolutely. My family were heavy influencers, particularly my parents. You know, I um, I always had a very open relationship with my parents in terms of my career goals, my ambitions, talking about what I was good at, maybe what I wasn't good at. And then I had some really great mentors along the way too. So at work, um, I've always had at least one person that kind of took me under their wing and became a consultant and advisor. And then I also um, have always been lucky enough to have a best friend at work too, which helped me feel fulfilled at work. It made me excited and happy to go to work every day, but also like a go-to person who understood the nuance of wherever we were working and um, somebody to bounce ideas off of, of like, hey, I'm thinking about applying for this new thing, or I'm thinking about taking on this new project and vice versa. We could be that for each other. So. Um, so I've been really lucky to have that. And then outside of those people, I also had a very great group of friends that I knew just from my culture of growing up in an Indian American family. And so these were friends that maybe I had met through cultural organizations that I was a member of or through the temple that I attended. And this was a really powerful network of people that I had access to. Um, and then that also meant that I had access to their parents. So it became like this whole community of support system of people that I, I could lean on and go to for advice or a listening shoulder. Um, and I could provide the same to those people as well. So I've been, been pretty lucky along the way. I would say maybe to your audience though, and the people listening here, I was pretty proactive in seeking people out and asking for help. So um, it wasn't like all of this just came easy or naturally. Some of it did, but a lot of it, especially the work-related people, like I would, I would seek them out and I would say, you know, you seem like somebody whose path I would be interested in following or I'm intrigued by. Can you tell me about it? And um, and usually people are very open to talking about themselves and when are feel very flattered when they're asked for advice or guidance. And so everyone's been very helpful along the way. So you kind of answered the next question I was going to ask, like people hesitate to start talking to strangers. And so my question was, you know, how did you start networking? So kind of you answered that. Were there other strategies you applied to just approach new people that you are very uncomfortable? What really helped 
those situations? So one thing that really helped was sometimes I would be invited to sit in on a meeting um, or I would, I'd be invited to just listen in on a call or something like that. And whenever I was given those opportunities, I always said yes. Even if it didn't feel like something that was exactly aligned with the work that I was doing or the role that I was in, it was an opportunity to be exposed to something that I may not otherwise have an opportunity to be exposed to and new people as well. A lot of times, nothing really came of that. You know, there was no like specific action or next step or um, anything to do with that. But many times there was, or years later, it would come back around. And it was, you know, one of those things like the seed had been planted years before, and no one could foresee that this would now somehow come full circle back into my life. And so saying yes um, to opportunities that are offered to you, because that's, you know, very low barrier to entry, but then also being proactive at the same time, like I mentioned earlier, to seek some opportunities. Now you want to be careful that you don't want to seem overly ambitious or like you have ulterior motives. Like there's a risk of coming on too strong. So use your best judgment, but position yourself to make yourself available to opportunities or um, or seek them out on your own. So when you started looking at roles and jobs, were there certain roles that you took that you think have really helped you, not just for this position, but mm -hmm. in general, in terms of dealing with life, in terms of yeah. dealing with various jobs you have held? And what would those be that you would really recommend to our listeners? You did say sales, which is one of mine. I always tell my mentees, go for a sales job. It really yes. prepares you for life. So sales, I would agree with that one, Divya. So I'm really grateful to have had that early, earlier on in my career. I think another one is an opportunity to manage hourly employees. That is a very eye-opening experience. And I always say that if you can manage if you can manage people, then you can really succeed in any job um, if your plan is to go higher up in an organization. It seems like that there, as you go up higher anywhere you go, um, management and leadership comes with it. There's very few roles, I would say, that climb up the chain that are individual contributor roles. So getting as much management experience early on, in starting out and as early as you can in your career and moving up um, is uh, something that I would highly recommend. So during all of your career, if you had to go back and redo something, any one thing, what would that be? That's a really good question. I think that I would have focused a little bit more on identifying what I'm really good at earlier if I could, if there was a way for me to figure that out sooner. Uh, because I, I do think that I, I took a long time to figure that out and it ended up being operations, which um, I really didn't get into, I started right before I got my MBA and then continued even afterwards. But um, by that point, I had already been working for um, five or six years. And I think that it slowed my progression in my career a little bit. Like now I'm very happy where I am, but I think that I could have, I was, I had wanted to move up at the same rate as some of my colleagues. And for some reason they were moving up at faster than I was. And I think that it was just that I was like a couple of years behind in terms of really knowing what I was good at and then pursuing that. So getting there faster is probably something that I would, I would do over. And just looking on the same note, what is your biggest failure? Again, this is perceived. Sometimes it wasn't a big failure, but at that point you felt like, oh my God, this is like the biggest failure I've had. 
And what did you learn from it? One of the companies that I worked at, one of the healthcare companies that I worked at, I wanted so badly for that to be my forever company. I I really so badly wanted that to like rise through the ranks of organization and keep moving up. It felt like one of those situations where the harder you try, the more elusive it becomes. It was extremely frustrating. This was a very difficult time in my life, to be very honest with you, where I just felt like no matter, there was nothing that I could do that would ever make this be a good fit for me. And the reason that I call it my biggest failure is because I was so hung up and so stuck on like, this was the only place that existed in the world and the only place to work. You know, after I finally left and finally decided, look, this is not the place for me. Like this is, this is causing me a lot of mental strain and unhappiness, emotional stress. Um, Why am I trying to force, it's like forcing the square into the circle. That's like really what I was doing. And, you know, within the first three months that I left, you know, it was shocking how much my perspective had changed and how much bigger the world seemed and how this was a place that was like literally in the rear view mirror. I just didn't even recognize that person from, you know, six months prior. So my greatest failure in not succeeding there turned out to be the best thing that could possibly happen to me. I think we have all been there, especially women. We get so attached and we have a comfort zone and we want to prove ourselves in that specific little environment that we lose focus of all the other outside big world that exists with a lot more opportunities sometimes, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are a wife and a mom of a seven-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. So how have you been able to manage all of that balance in your life? Yeah, this is so difficult. And it is so something I struggle with every single day. And some days I get it right. Some days I don't. Um, My husband, my partner, we, we all three live together. And he's also a senior executive at a company. And his is a startup. So his job is extremely intense and demanding and quite unpredictable at times that requires him to also travel quite a bit. We have some challenges that I'm sure are not unique and some people listening now can probably really relate. The most practical thing that I can tell you that I've done, Divya, is I have set very clear hours every single day that I will work and I really stay committed to that. Um, I start my day at 7 a.m., my work day at 7 a.m. My husband is on drop-off duty and I'm on pickup duty. At four o'clock, I close my laptop, I get in the car, I go get my daughter, and my commitment to her and to my family is once she's home, I am 100% hers. And that also means, though, that I'm we're doing homework, we're getting dinner ready, like We're checking the mail. So like home things, but we are together. That's how I promised her. Now, I only do that because I also have a very strict regimen for all of the other things. Like I work out early morning um, and I do my meditation in the morning. Um, I try to do all the cooking in the morning so that um, I don't have to waste a lot of, spend a lot of time in the evening that's with my daughter to do that stuff. So if any of those things don't happen, it is like a derailing of my day. So I'm a, I'm a little bit regimented if you can, if you can understand and you're getting that sense. So in the morning, it is very like, come on, everybody get moving. Like we got to go. We got to go. We have 15 things we have to do before it's seven o'clock. <laughs> yeah, but that's so true. If you don't set boundaries, it's just very hard, especially with this work from home, everything creeps in. 
Exactly. And it's just you, you cannot get everything done. I'm a checklist gal as well. I, mm-hmm. I have about 10 things for the day and everything has to be checked by the end. Yeah. So I completely get where you're coming from. <laughs> the The other two things that I want to share, if it's okay, Vivia, is if you're, if the space where you work, if you work from home allows it, have it in a separate space than your bedroom and your living room. So I'm fortunate to have a room in the house where I can close the door And that really does help create some separation. So even though my commute now is like going from upstairs to downstairs, um, you know, being able to close the door and like just shut the laptop and not hear it dinging and whatever is coming in is a huge help. I've also stopped sleeping with any of my devices next to the bed. So those also remain in my office. Um, I keep a book and a light next to the bed and and a glass of water and that's it you know what the best part i found to keep that separation you have to put all your chargers away from your bed yes so when the charger is not next to the bed nobody can bring the device yes that is so true that is that is such a good point 100 percent. another guest of ours had actually also mentioned the same thing that you know there is a device time you leave all devices downstairs before you come up for bedtime yeah. with the kids so nobody has devices. So that sets this whole mindset even within kids. And I thought that was so good. Now let's talk a little bit. We'll deviate a little bit. You are an author. And yeah. you are also, um, that was the Amazon bestseller. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Sure. So this is the one thing that I can tell you actually brought all of my things together. So writing, business, my healthcare experience. I was working in corporate America for a while and for a long time. And there was a period where I just felt very unfulfilled. I felt like I was um, not working towards anything that really meant something to me in terms of my personal values. Um, I've always been bent towards like social justice, speaking up for vulnerable voices. um, And none of the work that I was doing really fulfilled any of that interest or desire for me. So this idea had been brewing in the back of my brain for a few years about uh, to write this book. And the topic was uh, human kidney trafficking. So this is a type of human trafficking that exists. Some people have heard of it. Some people have heard of it in the context of like a movie where somebody wakes up in an ice bath and with a note that says, I've stolen your kidney. That's a very Hollywood approach to this problem. Um, And that's not what happens in real life. But anyway, I decided to take some time off to actually finally write this book. I had been educated about this topic in several different ways in my life, just coincidentally or karma or whatever you believe in. Um, So I finally took the plunge. I quit my job and I just became a writer full time. And the timing of this was also just before my husband and I decided to start a family. So, um, so it gave me time at home to like, uh, get ready to have a child. I also had a difficult pregnancy. So I, it actually worked out because I couldn't work anyway. So I was really just sitting on the couch for most of my pregnancy and had a lot of time. So I decided to write this book. I published it just a little bit after my daughter was born and it did go on, you know, thankfully to such amazing supporters, um, to become an Amazon bestseller. And it is. Um, it's fiction, it's a thriller, but it's based on 10 years of true stories that I either researched, like secondary research or primary research. So I had gone to India 
um, myself and done some primary research. I traveled into the villages where people were victims of this crime, um, talked to a lot of people and yeah, and then I poured it all into this book. Kudos to you and congratulations. Definitely it's a work, blood, sweat and tears. So great job, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. And you're also an activist. You have, you participate in local politics. Um, you also are part of Mom Demand Action. Mm -hmm. What is that? Sure. So Moms Demand Action is a um, national organization with chapters in just about every major city in the United States. And this group is fighting for gun safety laws in the United States. So it started out as a very small group in a very small community, a group of moms who were just fed up with what was happening in American schools, fed up and scared. And um, what started with that small group of moms has now become a major, um, a major organization in the fight for gun safety in the United States. So I'm um, just starting to become active in the chapter, my local chapter, which is in Phoenix, Arizona, where I live, and something that I'm planning to get more involved with because I have a young daughter, I'm scared, and I want to make it better for not just my child, but all children and anyone who's impacted by the gun laws in our country. Great job, Mamta. That's really incredible and very commendable. How do you find time for all of this? Like the, these are like big initiatives and they do need a lot of time commitment. Um, you also do global majority vegans. Right. <laughs> so that, that's a lot on your plate, but, but congratulations. Is there a secret sauce for getting everything done? <laughs> Oh, geez. Um, I don't know. I think I'm still figuring this out myself. And I do wonder, you know, th this thing, you may have heard of this concept of mom guilt, like that is very real, that every time I commit to something else, it's time away from my family. I really just try to be efficient with the time that I'm given. And I feel like whatever hour I am given to work on a project is a gift. So I'm not going to waste it. And that really helps me to stay motivated and keep up with all of the things that I've signed up for. The work that I do, my extracurricular activities, like non-work, like the Moms Demand, Global Majority Vegan, um, those are activities I'll do after my daughter goes to sleep. So I'm not cutting into the mommy time. And so I just find different ways like that. Um, if, if she has you know, her activities, soccer, gymnastics, math, math, or um, she's in a science club, then I really maximize those times as well. Um, I do a lot of phone calls with people while I'm driving, so I can do two things at once. So just little tips and tricks like that, or when I'm chopping vegetables and co getting cooking done, then I'll have my AirPods on and I'll call a friend or talk to a family member. So I just, I try little things like that. Now, there are definitely days where I just say, forget it. And I'll throw on a romantic comedy on Netflix and I will just turn off my brain and, you know, eat some chocolate and peanut butter and call it a day. So I definitely give myself space, uh, space to do that too. So you're raising a multicultural child. Mm -hmm. Is that really challenging? Thankfully, no, it's not a challenge for me personally, because um, my, my partner, my husband, who so I come from an Indian background. My parents are immigrants from India and I'm first generation American, but the, uh, I grew up with strong cultural values and celebrating and honoring my culture. So we have continued that in my married life. 
And thankfully, my partner loves celebrating and honoring all of those things too. So, um, so that makes it really easy. And then we've also made a concerted effort to really honor my husband's background. So he is part Hispanic, Filipino, and white American. Um, so in particular, he identifies with his Hispanic culture. So, um, so now as big of a deal as I make Diwali, we celebrate Dia de los Muertos in my family. We make traditional Mexican food at every holiday celebration from Thanksgiving to Christmas to Diwali, you know, so it's, it's truly a, um, a collection of all of the things that make us who we are. And my daughter loves it because it means like we're always decorating the house for some new celebration and we're always having big feasts and family and friends over. So, um, and then she gets to wear all the clothes. So, so she's all about it. She loves it. And um, I think she definitely identifies most as being Indian because she wants to be like mommy, but she definitely is appreciative of all of the things that she represents. That is so cool. So coming back to your life, right? Are there instances where there were certain perceptions surrounding women or your ethnicity that really did not let you go where you wanted to go? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was more had to do with my gender than, than my ethnicity. So there was a perception that, you know, as a female, somebody who identifies as female, that I would really only be successful at certain types of roles or in certain functions or only at a certain level. Um, and then I wouldn't get much further than that. Um, and that came from people in my community, sometimes even my own family, and then even people, colleagues that I worked with. So people who probably thought that they were giving me good, good, candid advice and but we're really limiting what I could potentially do thankfully I'm just somebody who naturally is like when somebody tells me I can't that that triggers me and pushes me forward um and that has served me in in my ability to move up and and kind of not prove them wrong because they're nothing like I don't have to prove it myself to anybody but prove it to myself that those people are wrong. That was what was really important. Are there things that we women do that really don't help us in the long run, like certain mindset or certain behaviors? Uh, one thing that I I did a lot of, and it's taken me a long time to unravel, is thinking that other people knew better than I did, especially what was best for me. You know, I would hear you can't or you shouldn't or you won't be able to. Eventually I was able to overcome that, but for a long time, you know, I would think, well, this person cares about me. This person loves me. They wouldn't say that unless they were really genuinely trying to help me. And it took me a long time to realize that it had nothing to do with love or what they know. It was just that I needed to be comfortable in my own skin and be feel more confident that I knew what was best for me than anybody else. And I think I see that a lot of women doing that. And so if I can help break that cycle for anyone listening earlier than I had the realization, like, please, I would ask you to, to take that into consideration. And the other thing is apologizing. Apologizing when there is no reason to apologize or trying to, and another way of saying that is making ourselves smaller than we need to be. And that is something I think so many women can relate to that we all do it. We have all done it and just stop. Like you have earned where you are. You deserve to be where you are and you have nothing to apologize for. Thank you so much, Mamta, for your time. Um, any closing comments for our listeners? Um, I just want to say that 
I'm so grateful that you've created this space for people to hear stories from, you know, everyday people that have good things to share. And, you know, if I can impart one thing, it is, you know, yourself best, you get to decide what you can take on what you can't, what you want to do and what you don't. And then it's on you to go to go get it. And it's not easy, you know, even now in the short time frame, if it sounds like I just painted this rosy picture, I've gone through a lot. And if anyone would like to hear more about some of the struggles, I would be very happy to connect with your listeners um, and share a little bit of that because it's it's been a, a long road full of a lot of ups and downs. I think persevering means picking yourself up at the end of at the end of the night or at the beginning of every new day and and saying let's try again. So well put. Thank you so much, Mamta, for this really great your time, your experience, and all of the great advice. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Vivian.